today we begin a new sermon series which we have called Blueprints and it's a sermon series based in Ephesians, the book that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and that church uh, was a church based in the city obviously of, of Ephesus, that city was a, a prominent town in the Roman Empire and uh, it was a city uh, well known for its pagan worship, for its worship of the goddess Diana, so on the top of the hill in Ephesus was a temple, and that temple was a temple to the goddess Diana. And it was, Diana essentially was a sex god. And, and it, it was said that as the sun set down over uh, the temple, and as the, the shadow came down the sides of the hill, the mountain, into the city, so the temple prostitutes would come down into the city uh, to ply their trade. So that's the a little bit of the backdrop. Uh, of the letter to the Ephesians and the church uh, which Paul started there in Ephesus uh, had thrived and done very well. And so Paul writes as he does to many churches to the church in Ephesus. The, the letter would have been a, a circular letter, a letter that would have been read from Ephesus and then taken on to other churches in turn. There was something of a, a tradition of doing that in some of the churches that were closer together. And they would have been kind of a, a postman, a, a delivery person who would have carried that letter personally to one church and then to another church uh, so that each one would receive it uh, kind of personally, as it were. And so that's what uh, uh, the book we're going to be studying. We do it in two halves. So up until Easter, we're going to take fairly large chunks of it and study through together. And then after Easter, we're going to look at the section at the end uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul goes into some detail about the armour of God and how uh, the Christian soldier, the Christian believer, needs to be armed in order to fight uh, the battle for God's kingdom. And so uh, that's how the process we'll be going through, and today is the first in that series. So I'm going to begin really by reading uh, the first few verses of Ephesians chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely has given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked with him, uh, in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a, depo a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance and to the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. One of the privileges of, of leading a church is that you get to do uh, the big moments of life with people. And it's going to be a great privilege uh, for me and uh, for Cheryl too, for us, uh, we're going to marry uh, three, at least three or maybe four couples this year. I also had a request from the church we served in before we came to Bristol uh, for a dear lady saying, would you, uh, when, when my time comes, would you please 
conduct my funeral service, which will, of course, be terribly sad, but also a great honour. And one of the real honours um, of the last church we were in, uh, for Cheryl and I particularly, was to be part of the adoption story uh, in a family. And a little lad, very young, uh, just uh, probably under one, uh, was being adopted into a family. And his own family were unable to look after him for one reason or another. And through the process uh, of, the, of adoption, he was going to become part of a new family, part of uh, who were part of the church. It's such a thrill to be there in the moment when it all happened, when the final uh, things are signed and the judge says, that's it, it's all done. And so we were there on that day and Cheryl and I uh, went along and sat there in the courtroom and high up above as the, it tends to happen, the judge is in her seat and she had some things she had to read and say and some things that had to be signed and that was all fairly serious and solemn. It was to do with the law and, and making sure everything was done right and proper. And so she did those things and the documents were signed and then she said, it's done, it's complete. And she stood up and her face broke into a smile. She said, right, well, let's celebrate. This is wonderful news. Can I be the first to congratulate you on the growing of your new family? And of course, then we all went off and celebrated uh, through the day. It was a wonderful, wonderful moment um, as this little boy became part of, legally became part of a new family and he in that moment had very little idea about what was really going on and it was going to take and it has in the years since then taken him and will take him the rest of his life really to understand fully what it has meant for him to have a new family a family who chose him and, and went through all the processes in order that they would become his and he would become theirs and it was really very beautiful and one of the illustrations that Paul uses when he's describing what God has done for us is that of adoption, that you have been adopted. You weren't part of God's family and now you are part of God's family. And it's something that Paul describes in great detail in a number of his letters uh, and here in Ephesians 2. And the phrase that he uses, the phrase that we need to get used to if we're going to understand uh, Paul's writing is the phrase in Christ. He uses that phrase again and again and he uses it in this passage a number of times the phrase in Christ, and he uses that on purpose. And he's saying there are so many benefits to being a believer, um, and they're all caught up with the fact that your identity now is not as an individual, it's not as an English person or whatever nation you might come from, it's not that you're black or white, it's not that you're male, not that you're female, it's that you are in Christ. That's the fundamental thing about you, that you've been adopted into the family of God, and that all that was coming to Jesus is now coming to you. We'll look at that in some detail as we carry on through. Just before the verses I read to you, Paul addresses and opens his letter. We tend to open our letters with dear so-and-so. Paul opens his letters in quite a different way, and he addresses his letters to the saints or the holy ones in Ephesus. And we might think, well, that's just his, uh, that, that was just the fashion at the time, and that may have been so. But Paul is making a point here. Because if you, I don't know if you know the dictionary definition of the word saint, but it is, uh, it actually, the, the definition is this, a person of exceptional holiness or goodness. And I don't know whether anyone would put their hand up for that. I, I suppose I probably wouldn't. Uh, but the Bible defines a saint in quite a different sort of way. Saints are those who are in Christ, those who have been forgiven by Jesus. It's not uh, to Paul, and it's not to the Bible about what you might or might not have achieved that makes you a, 
as saint, not your behaviour, it's Christ's finished work. So Paul, even as he begins the letter, he's making his point, which he does again and again, many, many times through his writing, by saying that your position, your position as a believer, as a Christian, is all about what Jesus has done, and very and nothing, very little to do, nothing to do, in fact, with what you have done. It's not about you being a very good person. It's about God being a wonderful saviour. And so we've got to get used to that. Paul makes that argument in all of his letters. He begins by telling us and, and retelling us what Jesus did for us. What has he done for us? And what is he doing for us? What did he do for us on the cross? What did he do for us by being uh, by becoming a human and, and, and living amongst us? What did he do for us by rising from the dead? And once he's done those things, he then the letters usually change into and what should we do in the light of a God who's loved us like that? We're quite used to um, our behaviour coming first. Uh, so most of the, our systems, particularly in this country, our schooling system, the system of we have of working, uh, it's all about, well, if you do these things, then you will get this reward. So if you behave yourself well at school, you work hard, you get these exam passes. And if you uh, turn up to work every day, and if you do the work that you're supposed to do, then they keep paying you. Um, so it's kind of behavior first, reward comes second. And most of our human systems work that way. We don't uh, have much of a frame of reference for anything else, uh, except when Jesus comes along and does something completely different. He says, I've set my love upon you. And it says here in the passage, uh, before the foundation of the world, I chose you. And we and we're left stunned. But that is the essence of grace. Uh, it's the essence of God's love for us, that he would do everything necessary to win our salvation. Later on in the letter, he's going to explain a bit more why it was necessary for God to do it and why any of our own works or uh, efforts would be utterly futile, in fact, an insult to God. Uh, but here he's, he's making that uh, claim, that he's stating that case right here at the beginning. One thing to notice here uh, in the passage is that Paul starts by praising the Father. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. It was the Father's plan. He began it. Um, and what we see is it's every spiritual blessing and it's in Christ. That's how it works. Again, that phrase right at the beginning, every spiritual blessing, how has it come? How does this blessing uh, come to me? How is it transferred onto me? Why am I kind of a recipient of it? Well, it's in Christ. That's how it has come to me. And so the spiritual blessing, the scope of it is as comprehensive as Christ's work is complete. It is absolutely all-encompassing, as wide as you like, as high as you like, as deep as is possible. Why? Because Christ's work is complete. It can come to you in all its fullness because Christ died and rose again completed the task in all of his fullness and so that term in Christ again comes back to remind us of who he is and what he has done again if Paul uh, wanted to emphasize and he does the fact that it's what he had done and not what you might do or what I might have done that has uh, qualified me to be part of God's family he says this later on in this passage he says that uh, actually you were predestined it was God's plan before the foundation of the world to love you and to win you. And if you think about that, well, God 
set his love upon me before I was even thought of, before I'd done anything good or bad. So how can his choosing of me being based upon my own behaviour? It can't possibly have been because I hadn't done anything yet. I, you know, I had no, I, you know, I hadn't qualified or disqualified myself. And what Paul is saying in that is saying, it's nothing to do with you. It's about him and his love for you. He predestined you. Know, predestination, of course, is a big subject. You might want to discuss it through in your groups this week. Uh, but nonetheless, Paul uses it for that reason to remind you that it was all of God and not of you. And of course, that predestination speaks of God's greatness, of his omniscience, of his all-knowing wisdom, that he can know the end from the beginning. We read in other places that he's the Alpha and the Omega. That's the, the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. He started it and he will finish it. He will carry through to completion all that he's begun in you. How, how, can, we, how can he be sure of that? Well, he knows the end even from the beginning. And again, that's what Paul is saying. He's saying that before the world was created, he set his love upon you. So we've been chosen and chosen even before the world began. But chosen for what? Well, chosen, the passage says, to be holy and blameless, to be sons in Christ, to be adopted. We started there with that story of adoption. And that's how he has chosen you. Of course, if you have children in, 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 outside of adoption in a normal way, um, you, you don't you love them obviously you do and they're a great delight but you don't in that sense choose them you kind of you're not sure what you're going to get and it's a mystery until the uh, kind of the day of birth and all those that wonderful moment and, and you look into their face oh wow this is this is who we've been given isn't it wonderful but with adoption you go and choose them and God wanted to give us the dignity of saying I've chosen you and so adoption was the the method that he used for that and with adoption, of course, comes the idea of inheritance. Um, inheritance uh, in the days of, of, of Paul's writing, in the Jesus day, and of course even through the Old Testament, would have carried a, a huge amount of understanding and meaning. It was very much part of the life of those early um, uh, kind of Jews and the early believers. It was part of the systems that they lived and grew up with. It is a bit for us, but maybe not in quite the same way. And the system for them, and I guess it is in many parts of the world still, even now, would have favoured, in fact, hugely favoured the firstborn son, uh, even above any other, any girls who were born prior to him. And so the firstborn son would have received a huge portion of everything that was coming in terms of inheritance, so at least a double amount and maybe even more than that. And we might look at that with our eyes in 21st century Bristol and think, well, that doesn't seem very fair. And yeah, we might well be right. Yeah, it doesn't seem very fair. But when, when God says to us, and Paul says to us here in the letter, you have been chosen in Christ. What he's saying is that you're being afforded, each of you, every one of you, who comes to Christ in repentance and faith, at that moment, at the, at the moment of your adoption, you're being included as the firstborn. You are the favoured one. I don't know if you've ever watched someone come into an inheritance of, of money or, or something like that, and, and you look on with, a, with sort of a little bit of jealousy, and, and you, obviously you're pleased for them, but you think, oh, wow, that's a, that's a lovely thing. Uh, and you watch them spend some of the money, and you, anyone of joy as well. Uh, we look on in, sometimes in those moments, and, and, we, and we might question our own hearts and motives and things, uh, but actually, here in this passage, what we see is that's you. You're the favoured one. You're the one to whom the inheritance is coming. You're the firstborn. You get the lion's share. 
You're the one who is at the front of the line when it comes to the inheritance. Why? Because your inheritance comes to you in Christ, the firstborn, the beloved, the only son of God. That's how we're to understand it. You receive that kind of an inheritance. Um, so what we see there as well, we see that the father initiates. We started with this. The father begins this plan. The son actions the plan. He's the one who comes, becomes a baby, is born and lives through his life on the earth and then dies and pays for our sin and raises to life, conquers death and calls us with him on that victory journey through the heavens. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit is released into the believers as a seal demonstrating the, the truth of that historic action that he took. And we need to understand that process, that what we see there is submission and authority. We see God, the Father, initiating. We see the Son. And Jesus said himself, I don't do anything unless I see the Father doing it. He was in submission to his Father's authority, even though he was God himself. And why is that important? Well, later on in the letter, Paul is going to appeal to the readers of the letter on the basis of that understanding of submission and authority. And so in order for us to uh, understand why he's appealing to us like that, we need to understand that that's how God has worked out our salvation. And actually, Paul is going to say later in the letter, towards the end of the letter, submit to one another. And that's a tough thing to hear. He's going to say, don't fight your own corner, don't champion your own cause, submit to one another. And, he's, and we might say, well, why? And he says, out of reverence for Christ. And here in this passage, we see the, the, his reasoning played out. Well, it was the Father's plan. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ blessed us, and the Son actioned that plan. We see submission and authority demonstrated before he asked us to do the same. Again, his argument and God's working is consistent. God's done something and now he's asking us to do something. But he did it first. He demonstrated first how we should live before anything else happened. Some of the things that we're going to read about in the next few weeks and months are very challenging. And that's a good thing. The Bible should challenge you. It should anger you at times. It should make you think very, very deeply and sometimes to struggle with the concepts that it brings to us. Why? Well, this is God's word. If we just were to read it through and think, oh, yeah, I agree with all that, uh, my suggestion would be that we're not really reading it properly. One, one of the challenges of, of being a preacher is that um, there are some passages that are very hard. Some, some are hard to understand. Some are controversial. And some are just, are, are just plain, uh, they, they just stand against the, the, the cultural norms that we live with. And what do you do with that when it's your job to stand up and, and kind of explain best you can the bible to people well the temptation is of course to leave those bits out and if you take a, a a thematic view of preaching in other words let's pick a theme let's pick the theme of love or let's pick the theme of reconciliation and we'll find the passages and the verses in the bible that talk about those things and that's how we'll preach but if you do that you can leave bits out or at least it's easier to do so whereas if you do what we're doing here which is to work our way systematically through a book you find these passages come because it's the next few verses and it's much harder to leave them out. And Paul actually in, in Acts 20, when he's in Ephesus, he says this to the Ephesians. He says, I, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. Why? For I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And that's our job as, as leaders and elders in the church, to bring the whole counsel of God. 
to the church. And that's what we're going to be doing. We're not going to leave any of it out. We're going to tackle it, all the difficult bits, all the challenging bits as we go through. But before we get to any of those bits, the, uh, the motive for why would we want to embrace things that seem to clash with our culture? Well, we would embrace them if we understood that a loving God had done so much for us already. That would be our motivating force. And we started and we'll conclude with this too, that we have been included in Christ. And because of that, our response, our loving response to an incredible God is to be obedient, is to follow him, is to trust him, to trust that he knows best, that he, that his way is the best way to do things, that actually he, he, his desire is that as human beings we will flourish in every area of life and that he knows the best way for us to do that. So let's look at some of the benefits of being in Christ. In Christ Jesus, we read in 2 Timothy and in Ephesians 1, uh, he gave his grace to us before the ages began. And we started there with that, didn't we? That he predestined, he loved us before the world began. He chose us before the foundation of the world. An incredible love that goes, and it's outside of time. It's beyond our reasoning, but beyond even our understanding, beyond our concept, beyond even the concept of the great scientists of our day, that before what happened before everything began? Well, we don't know. Well, here we get an insight. God loved you and gave himself for you even then. In Christ, you are loved with an inseparable love. Paul writing in Romans says that. I'm sure, I'm convinced that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, uh, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And that's one of the benefits of being in Christ. He, you are absolutely secure in him. There is, uh, there's no danger of you, being, of you being lost. There's no danger of you missing out. There's no danger of you losing your salvation. Why? Because you are in Christ. Is Christ secure? Of course he is. And you are in Christ. The Bible says you are hidden with Christ in God. You're so secure, so surrounded with his love. It would be unthinkable that anything could separate you from his love. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. In Ephesians 1, in the passage we read, Paul writes this, In Christ Jesus, you are redeemed and forgiven from all your sins. You have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of your trespasses. What Jesus did on the cross was to separate you from your sin. An incredible task. How do you separate someone from their sin? Well, he took it on himself and was punished for it in his body so that you could be free. And how do we know that's true? Well, it's true because you are in Christ. In Jesus, you are a new creation. In 2 Corinthians and in Galatians, the old has gone and the new has come. Incredible, not just, well, you're a scrubbed up version of what you were before and you know, do your best. No, he says you're a new creature. That's why the phrase born again is used. It's a, it's a completely new start. It's as if you had done nothing wrong, a new creature able to relate to God. It's a fundamental shift in who you are, in what you are. In Christ Jesus, you've been seated in the heavenly places while, uh, while he lived on earth. Christ raised us up in Ephesians 2, it says, with Christ and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ. The, what would happen is when the priest had finished the priestly duties, the priest would sit down 
at the right hand uh, would sit down. That that meant that that was the end of uh, that the end of the ceremony. He'd completed his task, and we know that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, demonstrating that his job was complete. The task of winning us and forgiving us of our sins, of separating us from our sins, was complete. And here we find that God raised up Christ and seated us with him. You're with him. Why? How, how do you qualify to be seated with Christ? Well, because he has put you in Christ. You're with him. You're in him and he is in you. In Christ, all the promises of God are yes to you. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes that in Christ, you are sanctified. You are made holy. That's the sanctification is the process by which our behavior changes in, in line with who Jesus is. So yes, at the moment of salvation, your sin is gone and you're forgiven, but sometimes it takes us, sometimes it pretty much always takes us years for our actual behavior to change. And whilst that behavior is not how we please God, it is something that God is working with us to. It says he changes us from one degree of glory to another. And sanctification happens how? In Christ Jesus. As we put ourselves in, as we worship, as we are filled with his spirit, so he lives his pure life out through us in increasing ways. In Christ, the peace of God will guard your heart and mind. And in Philippians 4, we read that. The peace of God, which is beyond understanding, will guard your hearts and mind. A fabulous passage used so many times as we seek to pass to one another. But how does that happen? How does the peace of God, how, where is this peace? How does it come to me? In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. He has completed all that is necessary for me. In Christ Jesus, you have eternal life. The wages of sin and death, Paul writes in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Wow, how in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's where we find it. And in Christ Jesus, you are raised from the dead uh, at the coming of the Lord. You will be raised from the dead at the coming of the Lord. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all should be made alive. So you've come out of your ancestor Adam and you've been put into your new ancestor, your new family, your adopted family in Christ. And so just Adam sinned and therefore died. Christ was obedient to the Father and lived. And we find ourselves through repentance and faith in Christ. Incredible and wonderful. Now we do often struggle with it being all of God and none of us. We want it to be about us. We kind of want, well, it's very humbling to realise that you, can, you can't contribute to your own salvation. And Paul himself struggled with this and in Philippians, uh, before his salvation, he struggled with it, I might add. But in Philippians 3, he writes this uh, to those who feel like, yeah, I'd like to contribute. I'd like to feel as if I had some part to play in my salvation. Well, this is his, his take on that, Philippians 3. If someone thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So Paul is saying, listen, if you want to play who's worked harder for their salvation, I'm going to beat you hands down. That's, that was my contribution. And then he makes an assessment in the next little bit of this passage about all of that. He said, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever more, I consider everything a loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, 
whose sake I have lost all things. So all that stuff, all that self-generated righteousness, this is what he says about them. I consider them garbage, rubbish. That's an extremely strong, it's not, the word garbage is not the right word. It's a very strong word. You might want to look it up and see what it actually means. A very, very strong word he's using there. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. It's a wonderful truth. We need to get it deep within us that the foundation of our faith, the beginning of the story and the end of the story is found in Christ Jesus. The main thing is still the main thing, and it's Jesus.